Welcome to the Chat Marketing Podcast, your number one place to learn actionable strategies and tips that help you have more profitable conversations with your customers. This podcast is here to help you grow your business by better understanding your customers, speak to them on another level, and grasp the opportunities that lie in the chat marketing industry. And now, let's get chatting with your host, live from Melbourne, Australia, successful chat marketer and entrepreneur, Dan Pinney. Hello, folks, and welcome to episode 21 of the Chat Marketing Podcast. I'm really excited about today's episode. I had a lot of fun recording this. Today's guest is Kate Toon of Stay Tuned. She is a speaker, an author, copywriter, SEO lover, and a dead set superstar. I'm a big fan of what she does. I'm actually a member of her Digital MasterChefs membership, and she's just really great at how she helps people grow their business, which is why I wanted to get her on the podcast. She also has a really unique experience with chat marketing and how people can use conversational techniques to get people to take action. We'll discuss that plus much more. Enjoy the interview with Kate Toon. Here it is. Hello, Kate Toon. Welcome to the Chat Marketing Podcast. Hello, Daniel Pinney. I'm very glad to be here. Pleasure. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you and to get into this conversation around, we're going to go down a number of different little paths, you know, full transparency for the people out there. Um, I'm a member of your Digital MasterChefs group and obviously I'm um, a big fan of what you do. We know one another as well, so we're going to be fairly honest um, mm-hmm. today as well, uh, which is going to be a lot of fun. But for those people out there um, that haven't been exposed to the Kate Toon brand, tell me a little bit about I'll tell them a little bit about where you've come from and how you've got to where you are today. Well, I started out um, in events and then advertising and started in kind of world of digital in about 1997, back in the UK, working on the Marks and Spencer's e-commerce website, which was the first e-commerce website in the UK. So that was exciting. And since then, I kind of bounced around different agencies until I started my own business, which is about 12 years ago. I started out in copywriting and specifically SEO copywriting, then moved into kind of SEO consultancy, working on the tech side of things and the back links. And about five years ago, I moved into, I began to want to move away from having clients um, or, you know, saw the potential to make more money by moving to a one-to-many model, you know, so instead of teaching one person, teaching 10 people. And that's when I kicked off my two businesses, the recipe for SEO success and the clever copywriting school. You know, they started with one template and a and a very bad course, and now they've grown into kind of beasts with courses, directories, job boards, um, conferences, shops, uh, memberships, and then more recently, in the in two years ago, no, it's now nearly three years ago, I launched the Digital Master Chefs, which now you're a lovely member of, and that is my kind of it's kind of my mentoring group. It's where I kind of I don't necessarily consider myself the expert in the group, but I've brought together a collection of really clever humans and we all kind of support each other like a Viking horde to build our business and do, and be smarter with digital marketing. So yeah, that's kind of where I'm at now. That's my, my core focus. Where in the UK did you grow up? Uh, I, I was born in Sambach near Cheshire, in Cheshire, and then I moved down south uh, to, I say Henley because it sounds nice, Henley on Thames. It wasn't Henley. It was a place called Twyford, which is near Reading. And then I went to uni in Leeds and my mum and dad are Geordies. So my accent is a real mishmash of Northern and Southern. And depending on who I'm talking to, I can get dead Northern. That's amazing. And now you've got the Australian um, 
part thrown in there as well. How long have you been in Australia for, by the way? I arrived just before the Olympics in 1999. So, yeah. Just over 20 years then. So God, that's so long. I'm so old. I know. Wow, you are so old, Kate. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Old and experienced. Mature and experienced. Yes, like fine wine. So what was the first, you've got a number of different arms to the business now. What was the first thing that you started to do um, once you'd left Marks and Spencer and you work with O2 as well, I think, back in the yeah. day? Yeah. So I, when I, I worked at an agency, in, I worked in events and then I moved into to this agency, which was called Pressco then. I think it's now called Wheel. And we did a lot of digital work, but I was the, you know, the producer for Marks and Sparks. After that, I came to Australia. So then I, I kind of went backpacking and did my little, you know, backpacking experience, which was very short lived because my backpacking compadre ran off with a Thai man called Bang. Um, and uh, I was left on my own. So I very quickly came to Australia and I was only there a week when I ran out of money. And so I went for a job. The first job I was uh, got an interview for, which was to be a digital producer at Ogilvy. Um, and I, I was so poor. I remember I bought an outfit from Portman's. Um, Portman's is a cheap girl's dress shop. Wouldn't expect you to know that. For like $17, but I didn't have any shoes and I couldn't afford shoes. So I wore flip-flops to the interview. Uh, but thankfully my boss, Sally was amazing. She took me on. I had to wear those flip-flops for an entire month until I got paid. Um, and that was my first job in Australia. And I did that for several years. They sponsored me. Then I went back to the UK, worked at a few different agencies, advertising.com where I worked on Microsoft as their copywriter, their main copywriter. And then I moved to O2 as their email marketing manager, which was really interesting. And then I moved back to advertising.com. And that's where I started to learn all about AdWords, SEO, affiliate marketing. Um, And then I came back to Australia and did a few more agency jobs. So yeah, a lot of different agencies and different roles within them, but all in the digital marketing kind of area. What was the SEO stood out for you as the first, one of the first things you started to do for people? Why that route? Um, Well, I think, you know, when I was working when I, when I started as a freelancer, you know, I Googled copywriter and it, there were so many results that came back. I was like, how on earth am I going to stand out? So I'd done some SEO for big brands like Pedigree Chum and, and a few others. And I was like, I need to apply those tactics to myself. So I did, you know, I built myself a Word, WordPress website and I looked at the competitors and, and really worked hard on looking at their backlink profiles. And so, and my good friend, Glenn Murray was ranking number one at the time. He's a brilliant copywriter. And I was like, well, you know, whatever articles Glenn has managed to get onto other people's websites, I will do the same. Um, I didn't realize at the time that he was good buddies with Darren Rouse from Pro Blogger and that had massively lifted him up. But I just, you know, I worked at it and I created a lot of content. I wrote a lot of blog posts in that first year. And we're talking... 11 years ago. So back then, you know, writing a good blog post was a really quick route to SEO success. It's not yeah. now, but you know, I just, and I, after about a year, I was ranking number one or two for about 200 keywords. And then people started coming to me and saying, well, how did you do that? And I started to release a few little templates and do some workshops, but SEO is such a big topic that you, if you do a one day workshop on it, people by the end of it just look like they wanted to die 
You know what I mean? Because it was just so information overload. Um, and so I realized that that wasn't the best way to teach it. And then I moved into having the course, which I still have today. And it's based on that original workshop. It was a, you know, a seven hour workshop and there are seven modules in my course and they are based on the original present PowerPoint presentations I did back in the day. So it was a good tester for the material, you know. And why that shift from client work to one-to-many model and courses and training and workshops? Well, I'd love to say that I have some kind of wonderful strategic business plan, but I think, you know, the move into SEO was I saw a gap and I saw that I could make money for it. And then the move into passive income was greed, to be perfectly frank. Um, You know, I'd got to the point where I was charging a premium price for my copywriting, um, but I only had, you know, I still had a four-year-old. So I only had the two days that he was in childcare to work um, and I just couldn't make enough money. Uh, You know, we bought a house. I'm the primary bread. I keep saying bread owner, but I think it's bread winner. Um, I'm the the bread winner. You know, there's things I wanted in life. I wanted a nice house, um, you know, I didn't want, I don't want extravagant things, but we had nothing, you know, like we were proper poor. And so I wanted to make more money and I saw that as an opportunity to do that. And, um, yeah, that was it. To be honest, it was purely financially motivated. It wasn't like I had a brilliant why or a mission to serve people or some lofty ideal. My lofty ideal was to try and provide for my family. And that's why I did it. And for you know, at least a year, I was doing both. I was building the, the passive stuff, which is not passive, as you know, um, and having clients at the same time. And it was very hard. You know, my son was about four. It was very hard. It wasn't, it wasn't fun. There's no glory to it at all. Um, and then my son went off to school. Things change a lot when your kid goes to school, there's a big mindset shift, but really it's in the last two years that everything has clicked into place and become successful. And I'm doing air fingers, which you can't see on the pod. We should have a sound effect. Um, you know, there's a lot of time where I thought it was failing miserably, but if there's one thing I'm good at in business, it's turning up whether things are good or bad. So I've just continued to turn up and that's eventually paid off. Yeah, it's definitely um, something that I've noticed with your brand over the years. Um, That stage early on where it was just a decision that you had to do um, to provide for your son, for your family and to be the the primary breadwinner. Owner. Yeah. Owner. Um, (laughs) How... How, how does that, because that's, that's a big decision to obviously make um, and probably bucks a trend for a lot of other um, mums as well, um, stereotypically. How was that period early on and how did you push through that? Well, I think, you know, I don't make pivots, as people say. I don't make dramatic turns. I'm not suddenly like this and then this, you know, going 180, 360. It was a very slow pivot. Um, so I'm a very... Although I'm a risk taker, I'm a very mitigated risk taker. So, you know, I kept my clients and I'm like, I'm going to make, I'm going to see if I can sell this thing first. And so I, you know, built the sales page and I sent an email out to existing clients and people I'd worked with and people who'd come to the physical workshops. And that's where I started. And once I'd got, I think I got, I can't remember the figures. I have got it in a spreadsheet, but it was around 20 people on that first course. And then I built the course after I got them signed up. So it was very hand to mouth. You know, it was like the day of the court, the video due to be live five minutes before I'm trying to upload it. And before MBN, it was a nightmare. There was a lot of screaming at my (laughs) computer Um, and a lot of mum guilt, you know, with, with my son, you know, in the other room, you know, or, you know, taking time away from him, um, which was challenging. And as you said, 
where I live, especially, there weren't many other mums who had that kind of business. Still aren't, to be honest. It took me a long time to find my people. Um, so it was just challenging, but I don't know. I never really thought about it that much. I just got on with it. You know, it, it, I sound like a dummy, but I don't strategize that much. I'm like, let's give it a pop. What's the worst that can happen? Someone will buy it, you know, and someone always does buy it. And then you make it better and you make it better and you make it better. And that's still my process today. My dog has just come in the office, by the way. So he's managed to open the door with his head. Ah, hey, Pumple Miss. Pumple Miss is here. Do you want to say hi to Dan? No, he doesn't. Sorry. No, that's right. Yeah. Um, that's okay. okay. So. That's fine. My cats are asleep behind us as well. So it's so, all so good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll keep all this in a podcast, by the oh, way. Oh, yeah, of course. You know. Um, how do you then adapt as as your business starts to grow? You get a little bit of traction. You get some. You get 20 people to buy a course and then gradually grows from there. Um, how do you then adapt into copywriting and then to the point we now sort of doing that everything digital master chef. So I'm not sure how you sort of categorize that, but it's, it's, it's everything. Plus you've also got your own personal brand as well. You speak in, you write books. Um, how do you then move in and grow each of those? And do you have a plan or do you just like go and do it? (laughs) No, I definitely don't have a plan. I take a bit of a plate spinning approach in that like, you know, I will go hard at one thing. Um, You know, I'll I'll spend January updating the recipe course and make it as good as it can be. It's not perfect. There are flaws in it. But then I'll leave that alone and then I'll go and focus hard on clever copywriting school and I'll give them a ton of value, get that plate spinning and then I'll go hard on digital master chefs. You know, and also... I have added people to my team. So I built all of that on my own and I launched the courses on my own. Everything was on my own. And about four years ago, I got a VA, um, the wonderful Chantelle, and she just did a couple of hours for me and did bits and bobs. And then she left and I got a, a VA who called Leanne Woff, who started again with a few hours. She then has evolved and up level to become an OBM. And there's a big difference between VAs and OBMs. With VAs, you tell them what to do, I feel. OBM being online business manager. Yeah. So online business manager more tells you what to do. So they take away the operational stuff. It's like having a COO, I guess. Um, So, you know, bringing people in allowed me to do more. And, you know, I, I was getting to the point where I realized I couldn't do anything more than I was doing if I didn't get some help. And that that was going to mean, you know, at least three months of getting someone's head around the thing. It was going to mean a drop in revenue while I helped this person come up to level, but overall it was going to be an increase. And, you know, I look at my figures, I I have actually had a report done that, you know, that shows year on year revenue increases. And that year when I was building the stuff, like I was doing well as a copywriter, I was earning like 200K a year as a copywriter. The year I built the stuff, it went right down to like 120. Then the year afterwards, it went, it went right up to like 400 or something, you know? So I took the hit and then it went up again. And then that's been, a, and then it's gone up incrementally. Like my revenue doesn't go up massively each year, but I do look at that and that's how I make decisions. Like I will talk to my accountant and my bookkeeper and go, can I afford to bring on this person for X hours a week? So now I have uh, an OBM, I have two VAs, I have a copy editor, a podcast editor, an accountant, a bookkeeper, a graphic designer, two web developers, and a proofreader, um, all on retainer, oh, and a publicity person and a video editor, all on retainer for a set amount of hours. And that allows me to do all the things, you know, and that 
that is a luxury that I've earned through the revenue. So made the revenue first, then got the person. Most people kind of get the person and then make the revenue. I'm too scaredy cat for that. (laughs) I'm not a risk taker. So I need to have the money there, which might mean that I have to work harder than I want to for a bit, but then at least I have the security because I never want to bring someone on and not be able to pay them. That is my biggest fear. Yeah. And that's, that's a fine balance. I think that, that point where you kind of, you're overworked, but you need the revenue to pay someone and making that decision is tough for people out there. I think a lot of people get to that stage and they're like, I don't know what to do next. Do I need to work harder? Do I just fork out the money and take the hit? Um, And like you said, your revenue went down when you hired people. So what was that like in that first year where your revenue took a dip and being like, it's okay, it's going to be worth it. (laughs) The truth is, Daniel, and again, I sound like a buffoon. It's only now that I know that. Because at the time I was so bad with money and so financially illiterate and all my money went into one account um, that I didn't really, I wasn't aware that I had money and I wasn't aware when I didn't because I wasn't across it enough, you know? So now I can look back and say, oh yes, it was a 10%, a 10.2% increase. I didn't know that until last year. So, you know, I've always been relatively uh, frugal in the way that I live and spend, you know, I'm not buying Louboutins and whatever. Then it's funny though, when I started to make the serious money, I was like, why don't I have any of it? Like, I feel like I'm doing well. Where's the money going? And uh, that's when, and we've talked about this a lot. I'm going to make you pronounce his name again. Uh, (laughs) That's when I implemented profit first. And for me, that was the biggest shift I had in my business. And that's been the key to making more money, doing more things, hiring more staff. That was the moment when I started to understand my business. And that was six years in, seven years in. So it just shows how long it takes. Yeah. Well, I've only started to do, so it's, it's Mark Malkowitz. Oh, you're so good. (laughs) (laughs) That uh, if you're looking for, he was the one that's started, I guess, the profit first uh, system. And yeah, I'm the same. I only probably did it about 18. Like I, I read his book probably two years ago, but realistically it took six months before I could get my head around then start to implement it. Then got an accountant that knew the profit first systems and can work with a business that isn't a traditional business, doesn't yes. have, doesn't sell physical products and isn't holding stock and stuff like that. It's client-based money ebbs and flows. Some months are better than others. Um, so you really do need a certain type of accountant for yeah, that. And do. also understands digital products, Stripe, PayPal, all that kind of stuff. Open pay I have now as well. Yeah. And that was the big thing for me as well, because I launched the course, the recipe course, and then it did start to do really, really well, you know, and it would be a big injection of money on one day. Like within eight hours, I would make more than I earned in the first two years of my business. And that is a weird thing to experience um, because in reality, that money has to last you for three months. Um, and you have to, therefore, you have to get better at managing your finances because otherwise I'd have been out there buying Range Rovers or something. I couldn't even drive, so I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> but I might have bought a bike or something. So, you know, And also the thing with me is it took a long time for me really to acknowledge that my business was doing okay and that I could make these decisions and I could employ people. So I've always erred on the side of caution. And I think that's why it's taken me 12 years to get where I've got to, whereas some other people who are a bit braver, a bit more money savvy and a bit more risk-taky could have got here in five. But it's my journey and I'm happy with it and blah, 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 you know? Yeah. 
It's it's well it actually and full transparency, we've just hopped off a clubhouse before this, um, talking about fear and imposter syndrome. And fear is one of those things that I think people struggle with. And it sounds like early on you struggled with that fear of, and you mentioned this a lot. I noticed when you're talking about pricing is that one of your biggest fears is not being able to pay people and you will pay someone before you pay yourself. Um, and, and that goes back to your personality and your ethos and your morals. But, um, one of those things that people struggle with early on is making those decisions. And I think that probably is also related to pay, potentially people that listen to this podcast that are either people that build chatbots for other um, people and wanting to implement it as part of their business or just add chatbots as part to their business as well. How, how do you deal with that fear of adding something new? Like mm-hmm. let's take, for instance, one of your products, like the digital master chefs, for instance, right? When you first launched that, how are you feeling in the lead up to that where you're like, this is this is a different product for me. It's not niche, it's not copyright, it's not SEO. It's a bit of everything, right? How are you feeling in the lead up to that to say, I'm the person that can talk about this and I'm the person that can do that? Well, I think I've always, I always go on the model, but I don't look at what my competitors are doing because it massively messes with my head and makes me feel really, you know, get imposter syndrome and and feel bad about myself. So I always talk to my customers. And by that point, when I launched that, I'd had about 500 people take the recipe course and I knew that some of them still wanted support. So I went out to those people and said, if I started this and if it was roughly this price, would you sign up? And about 15 people said yes. And I'm like, well, I'm probably spending time, you know, trying to serve these people poorly through a Facebook group already. If I get 15 people and they're paying me, it's it's going to cover the time that I'm probably already spending anyway. And yeah. I'll, I'll be happy. This is the approach I always take. I'll be happy with 15 people. And then, of course, you don't get 15 people, you get 17 people. And you're delighted about the extra two. And I still have that feeling now. Like, I just launched Digital Master Chefs again. You joined this round. And I was like, it's a niche product. It's expensive. And people, not everyone's going to get it. And my ideal target audience is a unique type of human who totally understands digital marketing, who understands that it's a peer group that wants to grow, that isn't a wanker and that has money to spend. That's very niche. There's not many people like that. So I was like, if I get 10 new people, I'm happy, you know? And of course, in the end, I think I got 42 or something, but I was happy with 10. And I think that kind of... I know it sounds really pathetic, but having not not being negative and overly humble, but having lower expectations, not expecting everything to be gangbusters from day dot and being patient. Like, you know, now we have about nearly 300 members in that group, but it's been going for three years, you know, and for yeah. a long time, it was me and 10 other people. And I was okay with that. So patience is a huge part of my business, waiting, being building things slowly, improving them slowly. That's, I think, served me really, really well. So therefore, it's not a dramatic decision to go, oh, I'm launching this new thing. I wonder if it will fail. It's like, it probably will fail for the first year, but I'm okay with that. And that helps me make decisions easier because I'm not putting too much pressure on myself. How do you have that approach to things of being like, it, it probably will fail, but I'm okay with that and that patience thing. How have you trained that? Does it, is that how you've been brought up? Is that your culture? Is that being a mum? 
Gosh, I don't know. That's a really great question. I mean, I think possibly to do with how I've grown up, my parents aren't extravagant people. They're hard work. I mean, I've got very much a hard work ethic. And, you know, my dad's, you know, all about never a borrower, a lender be, don't have credit cards, earn your money first. So I've always been of the approach of I'd rather save for things than pay things back. I hate debt. I did get in massive debt in my business and it was it was killer. I don't like debt. I'd rather save the money, wait. It's pleasure delay as well. I'm a big believer in pleasure delay, like that thing you want to buy. The anticipation of buying it is almost as much pleasure as buying the thing. Yeah. And I think, you know, we've learned through profit first that there's a huge amount of joy in saving rather than spending. In seeing your money build up, it makes you secure. It makes you more confident about decisions. So, you know, when I'm launching these things, I'm launching them from a a position of power. I already got money in the bank. I've already got 400 people in my other membership. My course is selling. I can take a risk right now, you know, because, and, and that was the same with going off and doing speaking gigs, such a luxury to do speaking gigs. People don't understand it. It is such an expense, such a time expense. It's, you can't do that when you're starting out. I couldn't afford to, but I'm coming from a position of strength. So I'm not brave in any way. It's just, I'm, I'm weight, I'm patient. And I think that is probably my childhood. And again, fear because I don't want to take a massive risk. I don't want to be poor. I don't want to not be able to pay my people. So if that means it takes me six months to do what it takes someone else a month to do, that's my groove. At least I can do it feeling confident about it. Yeah. I think the reason why I asked that question, it it is rare in, in, you know, I I don't want to bash millennials and, uh, and Gen Z and like being like they want stuff now um, because we're just as guilty and older age groups are just as guilty of wanting their business to and expecting it to succeed straight Very out of the quickly. gates. Yeah. 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 And, and you're right. I think it's not millennials. It's, uh, it's our, our, I mean, you're much younger than me, obviously. Um, so much not more youthful. Much. <laughs> you just look it. I just look haggard. But, you know, in our bracket, there are a lot of people who are the same. You know, they look at other people having success and they think, well, I want that success. And if I replicate what they've done, I will have that success. Not realizing the yards that have come before and that it's not all it appears to be. You know, I'm from the outside, I'm quite honest about my ups and downs. So it probably doesn't look like this. But, you know, you see the swan gliding down the river and you don't see the feet flapping underneath. People don't see the flap. People want the swan. They don't want the flap underneath. And you've got to enjoy the struggle. This is so important. And I know you're the same as this as well. Like I enjoy the boring bits of my business. I love reconciling my zero. I like making spreadsheets. I like solving problems and doing research. I enjoy the boring bits, not just the glory moments. And in fact, the glory moments can be a bit hollow, especially if you put too much focus on them. Like you have your amazing launch day and it's like brilliant. But the reality of it is I now have to serve those people yeah, for the next when year. The work starts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's exactly. So yeah, I think enjoying the struggle is really important as well. And therefore you have to really enjoy what you do. Yes. That's actually a very, very good point. Um, the last bit, you need to enjoy it, which when you communicate with your customers, you love chatting to people. You're very active in your groups. You love communicating with customers. How has that communication changed over the years with your, as your brand and and as your tribe? Like I said, you are very honest um, in your groups, which is quite refreshing um, for a lot of people and attracts the right kind of people as well. How how has that communication and your messaging changed or has it changed over the years? It has. I think in the early days, 
so I went from being very cautious to being hyper real. And I do realize that sometimes my honesty is a bit much for people or that things come across the wrong way. Um, you know, even recently in, in my course, I made it, you know, someone was asking a question in a coaching call and I made a joke about it. And she actually took that quite personally um, and felt a bit embarrassed. That I'd made a joke about her question in a room full of people. And I thought I was being playful and keeping the call engaging. But, you know, I, I took that on board and realized, okay, Maybe I need to be a bit more sensitive to the different personalities in the room. And, you know, my humor is not for everybody. There's a time and a place and I need to be a bit gentler. So I'm definitely trying to be a bit gentler in my communications. I still think I'm contrary, but I don't think I'm controversial. I think that's it. I don't want to have arguments with people on the internet. What's the point? I've got better things to do. Yep. It is still me in all the groups. I still make all my own comments. I never have anyone commenting on my behalf. I am, and this is, you know, obviously relevant to this podcast. I am looking for tiny elements of automation. So, you know, I do have email flows set up now. Even in Instagram, I have a few little short codes that I use to send messages. And, you know, as you know, you help me set up just a simple chat bot for my Facebook page, which covers off some core questions that I get asked again and again. And that's something I want to do more of, not because I want to stop the human interaction, because as you taught me, chat bots aren't about removing the human interaction. They're just about solving a few quick problems so that the human interaction has more value when you actually do have it. And so that's something that, you know, you and I are going to be working on with me over the next couple of months is to look at my business and look for those opportunities that I can still be me, but I can maybe take away a bit of the time pressure because I do find it hard. You know, after this call, I'll go into Facebook and Instagram. If I go into Facebook after this call, I know that I'll have over 200 notifications because it's about 200 an hour that I get. And, you know, it's, it's a lot. And, you know, yeah. some of them are comments, some of them are just reads, but the comments, I do like to try and go in and at least respond in some way. It doesn't have to be a thoughtful thing. It could just be a thumbs up or an avocado or a, I agree or a ha ha, but I do, that's important to me and I don't want to lose that. So it's a fine line between automation and personalization, which I'm trying to tread. Yeah. And talk, speaking of that moment where we set up that simple little chatbot. Um, it was, uh, more related to your, your little SEO nibbles. Um, so I think it's on your Facebook page as well, but what was that moment? And I, this goes back to 2019, I yeah. think now, now the 2020s is wiped out, um, of history, um, <laughs> at click engage convert where we're setting up chatbots and, you could sort of see the penny drop for you. Where... Oh, it wasn't a penny. It was like a, it's like a brick. <laughs> I think I literally yelped, didn't I, at one point? Because I just thought chatbots were too hard and I'd fundamentally misunderstood the purpose of them. Uh, you know, I was like, well, I don't want to have a chatbot because I don't want to depersonalize my business. And, you know, the way that you showed me to set that up, it was actually to funnel people into those three funnels. Do you want copywriting? Do you want SEO? Do you want this? And, it, and Or do you want my book? Or do you want this? It was very, it was, it was like, uh, it's like a choose your own adventure, I would describe it as. But then, you know, you showed us how to, you know, I'm obviously a copywriter and we discussed how to inject personality into the chatbot. But then, you know, you also showed us how to add little memes. I've got like a little clapping cat, which I didn't know you could do. <laughs> and then you also, you know, showed us how to let people be free of the chatbot and say, by the way, just, you know, you're kind of in my chat, but if you don't want to be, you can go now. And also how to, the thing that I thought was the most important piece of advice you gave was to never pretend the chatbot is not, is you. 
Yeah. So it's, I call my chatbot Toonbot. And it's like, hey, you're speaking with Toonbot. And I make a joke out of it. And then, as you said, the, the, the whole process of it is not to not speak to people. But when people do want to speak to me, at least they're pre-qualified. Or maybe they don't want to speak to me. They just want to go and get the free thing. And we don't need to have a conversation for that to happen. Yeah. So I just had fundamentally misunderstood the purpose of chatbots. And, and that's why I yelped when you showed me how to do it. <laughs> well, I think that's an experience that a lot of people have. Like, it, it's just... Uh, people think bots and and that it is going to be a poor experience an impersonal experience that you know isn't going to reflect positively on the brand and isn't going to be able to understand the tone and the way that you want to present yourself but realistically it can be as personalized as you like and in fact uber personalized based on what people do or don't do or how far down the rabbit hole they want to go, really. Oh, I mean, it's actually an amazing, this is what people don't get, it's the actual reverse. It's an amazing branding opportunity. Something that I talk about in my business is microcopy. And that's error messages on forms, 404 error pages, mistake copy. That if you if you can do that well, then you're a genius. And with chatbots, you can actually make it a bonus to your brand experience. If you write, if you write with humor and you follow the guidelines that we talk about a lot, it can actually make a better experience for people because the other thing is it allows you to respond to people immediately. And that's a problem that most of us have in business that you can't respond quickly. If I get a response quickly that solves my problem and it's written by a chatbot, but it's helpful, I don't care. I'm just glad I got the response rather than waiting for two days for a personally written email. It's, it's, it's counterintuitive. So, you know, I feel like I'm only scratching the surface with chatbots. Like I set that up. It's pretty good, but I feel like there's so many more touch points in my business where that would actually help the customer. Um, you know, especially on my courses, so many questions and things that I could deal with more efficiently. So I'm just like, okay, I've, I've, I've had a sip of the Kool-Aid. Now I want a big mug full of it. How else can I integrate this into my business? You know? Yeah. And it, and because you were talking about the, the language and the micro copy side of things, um, obviously it's going to be beneficial for you to be able to then inject that personality and that humor. And how have you seen, um, copywriters and obviously you have a, a big group of them you do a course so you have a network of them as well um how have you seen people adapt to new mediums as they have arisen and as people are expecting shorter copy punchier snappier more timely more contextual how have people adapted to those new mediums and what sort of things are you seeing people do in those kind of mediums I honestly don't think people are adapting very well, to be honest. I think copywriters are still stuck in the in the the root of, you know, flowery, can be overly flowery. You know, there's this whole still pay by the word mentality. Um, we don't charge by the word as copywriters, we charge by projects, but it's a very it's like, well, I, I want to show the client value and value looks like more words. Whereas actually in reality, value looks like fewer words that are better written. Yeah. You know, it's like, uh, the, you know, I think, is it Hemingway or uh, it's, it's somebody, you know, I wanted to write you a, a short letter, but I didn't have time. So I wrote you a long one. <laughs> um, uh, it's not Hemingway, it's someone else. So I've horribly misquoted that, but it takes more effort to write something briefly, you know? So often when I write something, um, one of the great things I find is I do a lot of social media posts and I write them for Instagram and Facebook, which have very long, you can write as much as you like. And then I go to LinkedIn and LinkedIn's like, you're over your character count. And it is the best education ever because then you reread that post and you have to cut it back. Um, You know, and also the art of writing Facebook ads and Google ads, especially, 
it teaches you to really cut to the quick. And it doesn't mean you lose the humor and you cannot lose the personality too, but you do lose a lot of the fluff, the ballast, you know, the words that add no value. Um, so I haven't seen copywriters adapting as well as they should. And I think there's still an ingrained fear of these new mediums like chatbots and even, even video scripts for, to a degree. Yeah. Um, you know, I think people struggle with those as well. So I think it's, there's still a lot of work to do really. What sort of things do you think people could do? Like, let's say, take email for for instance. Um, you know, a lot more people are writing email sequences and email flows. Um, and even that medium, I'm finding emails are becoming shorter. Like, yeah. other than sort of a, maybe around launch time where you go into longer emails or if context is around the person itself or telling a story. But when it really comes to the sales and here's what it is and here are the commonly asked questions, it's shorter, sharper, and just to get people to take that action. So what sort of things did you implement in your bot and, and some tips that, you know, people can use to still have that, I don't know, impact and personality well, I mean, I think it's all about conversational copy. And I mean, there's some basic premises to conversational copy that we don't talk in long sentences. We do a short sentence, then a very, very long one that has lots of words in it, then a short one. We ask questions, we leave pauses, we invite responses. So, you know, there's a whole little ream of phrases I have in blog posts and emails that go, uh, you know, okay, let's get stuck in and here's what happened next. Or you won't believe what I did. You know, these little throwaway statements that lead people mm -hmm. from paragraph to paragraph using subheaders to signpost content. Maybe someone, maybe you have written a slightly longer email, but I'm just interested in this one particular point that I want covered. So help me find yeah. it using space, using bullet points, you know, reading out your copy and imagining you're writing an email for a man, this is what I often do. Like, this is such a sexist <laughs> statement, but I'm going to say it anyway. If I want to get my uh, my ex-husband to do something, he's a lovely man, but he will not read a long email. So I need to include, I need to focus on a single thought, single, so, you know, with an email, what's one thought that you want to communicate and what's one action you want them to take. And the often bullets are the best format to transmit information in, you know, cut all the adjectives and the prepositions um, and also action phrases, you know, like having call to actions that finish the sentence, I want to, I want to get started. I want to sign up. I want to buy it now. Just, you know, affirming action taking copy that's simple and clean, clarity over creativity sometimes. But the most important thing is to just read your copy out. Does it sound like you? Could you imagine someone when you leave that pause, someone going, yes, I agree. Or, you know, could you imagine it yeah. being a flow? Because in someone's head, they are reading it out in your voice and they're imagining talking to, to you, especially if you've got a podcast or something. People say, everything I read, I read with a weird Northern accent in my head. But they're also <laughs> answering questions. Like if you open an email, a question like, do you think chatbots are a huge waste of time? And you send an email that says that, 99% of people are going to go, yep. And then you're going to go in the argument, well, I know you do, hey, and lots of people do. And here's, you know what I mean? But yeah. everyone responds in their head, whether you think they do or not. So make it easier for them to respond. Talk to them, not at them. Yes, that's something that uh, when you when you experience the best chatbots, it's kind of, it's not overwhelming. And the worst chatbots are those long, particularly because we're reading on mobiles now. So you've got less space for more, for less words. So an overwhelmed 
block of text, particularly in the space like Messenger or SMS or Instagram DM, is just like, wow, that's even more overwhelming than it is even in an email or something like that. Yeah. And you don't need to have, you can break a question into two or three parts. So, you know, you can be like, so, you know, I think mine goes something like, hey, you know, welcome, you're talking to Toonbot. How can I help you? You know? pretty formal, pretty straightforward. And then it's like, are you interested in this, this, or this? Okay. You're interested in this. Was it this that you wanted to know? Okay, great. Well, here you go. And then it finishes. It's not like, as you said, we're trying to keep people on that chat book for the rest of their life and solve all their life problems. We're just trying to direct them to a resource or we're going to get to the point where it's like, okay, can't really help you with that here. Let's get on the phone or here's my email. And it's, it's, you know, when we talk to people on the phone, we don't, I'm doing it now. We don't monologue. We don't talk in paragraphs. We talk yeah. in sentences. And I think that's what people forget. They try and communicate too much, too quickly in big lumps. And that's not how we interact as humans day to day. Yeah. Is that something that you're seeing more of uh, the conversational type copywriting? Is that now a style that people need to use in pretty much all of their content in a digital format now? Yeah. I mean, if you look at even the sales pages that I write, they pose questions, there are short paragraphs, um, they're playful. I mean, one of the biggest things, tips I would give people is to take a little bit of a risk and be playful with your copy. You don't need to be thigh slappingly funny, but you know, like if you're writing a chatbot for accountants, account that's targeting accountants, accountants are humans too. You might not believe mm. it. And they have their <laughs> own, you know, foibles and, and quirks, you know, and it's like, you know, Hey, last time coming up, I bet you're feeling a bit sweaty. You know what I mean? I mean, it's not hilariously funny, but it recognizes the audience. It talks to the audience and there's kind of industry humor and idioms that will work and knowing your audience well is how you can do that. But being playful, I think is super important as well. Personality. Yeah. Um, who would have thought that you can have it in a business, right? <laughs> like, I just think people just think they need to, uh, I don't know, they're, the way that they talk to people just needs to be basic, boring and give the facts, but we are emotional human beings and that's people buy from people. Re- yeah, yeah, that's right. B to C or B to B, it's P to P. Is- it is all P to P, exactly. I love it. And the thing is then I think once you've realised that though, then that, throws you into another pit of terror where you say, actually, I don't have a personality or my personality isn't enough or I'm not exuberant enough. Yeah. And I had this conversation again on Clubhouse the other day with someone who is like, I just feel pretty boring. And I'm like, but you know, there will be something about you that is of interest to others. Yeah. But if you are a low key human that isn't exuberant, that isn't that horrendously funny, uh, that doesn't crack jokes or, or make witticisms, there are going to be other low-key humans that you totally appear to appeal to. Some people are just too much for other people. Yeah. And so you being you is the best way to deal with that because you'll attract more people like you. Then you'll enjoy working with them because the conversations will be on a level. So it's so important that you don't set a fake expectation and be like, hey, hi, welcome to my chatbot, <laughs> exclamation yeah. mark. I'm so fun. And then I got on the phone with you and you're like, hi, it's Daniel uh, here. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think there's a lot of, a lot of, that in conversational market sales, particularly chatbots, it's like you love blue, I like blue. Like it's <laughs> it's so just cheesy. agreeing. Yeah, yeah, cheesy. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's and, and it's something that people see through now. Authenticity, <laughs> like, and that conversational um, tone to marketing now is where the best marketers stand out or the most successful ones in the long term. 
in the long I term. Think as well. If there's one tip I can give everybody that I think is the drop mic tip for today is remove exclamation marks from everything you write. <laughs> exclamation marks do not make boring copy exciting. They just make you sound like a slightly over-egged 13-year-old girl. <laughs> so, you know, if you're like, hey, welcome to our pipes and tubing website. It's like, that's not exciting. And it doesn't need to be. The emphaticness of a full stop is highly underestimated. So, yeah. <laughs> yes, please, please heed that advice, people out there, <laughs> for the sake of all of us. PSA, public service announcement. <laughs> yeah. Um, I always ask uh, people a few different common questions. Um, your success over the years and building your business, and now you said 12 or 13 years in business, but even before that, how much of your success comes down to hard work and how much comes down to just pure luck and just being in there at the right place at the right time? Oh, I wouldn't know if I could put a percentage on it. I'd say a lot is hard work, but I have had a few, you know, I don't necessarily think they're lucky breaks, but I think I've, I've taken a few risks. I think a big step for me was when I got to speak at ProBlogger, I put myself up as an audience speaker. I just had 15 minutes, but that's when I launched myself into the world as an SEO person. And off the back of that, I set up a Facebook group, which then everybody who'd seen me at ProBlog, and there were about 300 people in the room. That's a, you know, a lot of them joined that group. That's when I launched the 10 day challenge, which was free back then. That's when I started to build my list that led to the big course, the now the paid 10 day challenge that kicked me off. So that was hugely serendipitous, but I did make a video and put myself out there when I was fat as and really unconfident to go and speak on stage. So that was good. And then another big one was, you know, again, I think some of my speaking, I did a year of speaking. I thought spoke at 37 events, lots, most of them unpaid, um, most of them to a room of like two people and a cat. Uh, but there were a few good ones in there as well. And I think that, that had a big change in my business where people started to see me as somebody worth listening to. So, but the rest of it, I'd say a lot of it is hard work and persistence. You know, we talk about what's the most important quality for an entrepreneur and we've had that conversation and, you know, creativity is great. Passion is great, but it won't last. Um, It's honestly about turning up when you don't want to turning up when things have gone bad and turning up when things have gone good, like not taking the good or the bad seriously, just keeping on, keeping on and enjoying the struggle. That's my big thing, you know? So Mm. even if like I hadn't, I was still enjoying my business even when it wasn't this successful. You know, I still really enjoyed it. And in fact, I actually hanker back for those days some days when I was just a copywriter. You know, I miss it to some degree. So to be able to come to my desk each morning and and be excited about my day or look, or have nice spots like today, I'm like, oh, great. I get to speak to Daniel and I've got a coaching call and then I might do a bit of quiet work. That's all I want out of life. And I think with those lower expectations, that patience and persistence, that's my success. That's how I've been successful, I think. Yeah, I think um, a lot of people experience that as their, maybe their business grows. I know I sort of experienced it being like, I had this goal, this revenue goal and wanting to build a business to that. And then I got there and I'm like, now what? Like summit, summit syndrome. Yeah, it's right. A real it's, thing. Yeah. it's a real thing. Yeah, and being like, oh, that next step's seems so far away or do or, I really or do I even want to take a next do I want step? to go there yeah like this constant pressure to scale um I've actually I'm, I've, yeah. I'll say it here and now I'm not getting any bigger I'm coming back down the mountain I am looking for ways to minimize simplify reduce um 
you know, what else can I bleed and do? I could launch another program or another course, but I'm probably better off putting the energy into the things I already have and making them better. But that's very poo-pooed in our world. If you're not climbing Mm. the mountain, then in some way you're, you're failing, but you know, Mm. scaling isn't for everybody. There comes a point where it's enough. That'll, that'll do pig is the line I like to use from babe. That'll That'll do do. down. That'll do down. That'll do. Um, you spoke about that was the worst Northern accent I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> we are really bad um, at the Northern English accent. Actually, I'm just bad at accents in general. I do a good Kiwi one. Okay. Um, that's about it. Um, you spoke about talking on stage as well and getting in front of people. So one question I want to ask you, you have shared a stage with Kylie Minogue before (laughs) (laughs) what was did that was that around that period or or did that then help you get on stage and be like this is easy two people and a cat so I'm sat next to Kyla Minogue on the couch and Graham Norton tell us that story I was very young then. I think I was 22. I was wearing the most awful outfit and weird socks. You can actually see the video on my website if you want to. But yeah, they we used to go and watch shows at the BBC because they were free. You could go free yeah. and they gave you a free glass of wine. So that's why we'd go. It's something to do after work. <laughs> so as we're queuing up to get in, the producers come down and they chat to people um, because they were thinking of this new idea, I realize now, of the red chair in mm. Graham Norton where they picked a member of the audience. So I was actually the first person they ever picked from the audience. So they'd already interviewed me. I'd already had a couple of glasses of wine. So I told them this story, which I won't tell you now because it's quite rude. Um, And they obviously thought she's a loony. We'll get her on stage. So Graham Norton gets a salad spinner out with all these, you know, uh, raffle tickets. And he says, look under your seat. And obviously I look under my seat and it's my number. So I come down to stage, like run down to the stage, sit down next to Kylie. And, you know, between you and I, the Kylie interview had been painful. It'd taken two and a half hours to film a 15 minute segment. She clearly wasn't feeling it. She wasn't in a great mood. So that I think he was actually relieved to have me on stage. Right. I tell my story with quite a lot of confidence. I don't know why, um, about this funny thing that happened about a man who fell down my stairs and I make a few jokes and halfway through he interrupts me and says, Kate, Kate, your chat show gold, your chat show gold. (laughs) And, and Kylie Minogue says, you don't need us. We should get off the stage. And, um, and so that's it. And then, you know, I look at myself now back and afterwards, I'm like, I remember chatting to Kylie and going, hey, how's it going? And, and, and how did you enjoy the interview? And I'm just chatting to Kylie Minogue like she was just another person. The confidence of youth, you know, yeah. but no, that had zero impact because there were 20 years between that and me starting my speaking career. Um, now it's, and it's something I'd almost forgotten about. Then someone found it on YouTube and dredged it up and I, and I share it now. But yeah, I look back at that person then who was, more it's taken me 25 years to get back to having the confidence that I had on that stage on that day so very funny mm, it was it's it's a great video um <laughs> head to your website and check it out I love that um you gave the idea for the red chair and you did it before they could flip you off um, yes exactly as well which, exactly. Is, which is even better they couldn't get rid of me they couldn't get rid of me so that was great <laughs> oh, I love that you did that um is there anything I haven't asked you yet? Well, you know, there's a lot of things you haven't asked me, but whether they're suitable for this podcast is a different <laughs> matter. No, you know, I think I think you and I are on very similar paths and at very similar sort of stages. And 
you know, I don't think I'm some kind of orb of knowledge on how to run a business, like very much in the digital masterchefs crew. I feel like I'm one of the gladiators in the ring, not the emperor with his thumb down in the chair watching people play. I still, every day, don't quite know what I'm doing. um, And I love that. You know, the day that I become super omnipotent and, and genius will be the day that I close my business. But for the moment, I'm still enjoying fighting in the ring and I hope I keep enjoying it. Yeah, we can tell that. And I think a lot of it comes across in your marketing. It comes across in your groups um, and it comes across in the people that talk about you as well. You often say, you know, a brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room. Um, that's like, a Bezos. That's a Jeff Bezos quote. But yeah, he, you know, whatever we think of Jeff Bezos, whatever we think of Jeff, that was a pretty good quote. Yeah, it's true. Um, <laughs> Your what? What do you have a, a name for your your people? People, my Viking horde. Um, I guess it's the Misfits. I do think the Misfits is a good. Uh, it's a brilliant TV show, by the way. If you haven't watched it, really good show. It's the Misfits, um, and I do think I attract a certain type of people. And I know that I could be more popular if I toned some of my stuff down a bit, but I don't want to be. Mm. Um, so, yeah, you know, and I think it sounds so woo woo and cheesy and I'm quite a cynical person, but the people that you surround yourself with do have a big influence on your day. And so, and you do kind of all lift each other up together. And I love the idea of having like, you know, some people call it a tribe. Some people call it a team or a gang. I do like the idea of it being a Viking horde, you know, and I say like, you know, if you want to go and invade Paris, if Dan tomorrow wants to invade his, you know, Paris, which might be, he wants to launch this or launch that, we're going to be invading Paris with him and we're going to be there for him. And I think that's the culture that I want to breed, you know, but just like the proper Vikings, you're in there with your sword as well. You're not watching from the hill as your Viking horde dies. And I think that's so important. Yeah. Um, well, it's definitely what I, I think if, if people, um, haven't come across you yet, which I'll get you to tell people where they need to go and find you, um, they will experience that as soon as they're part of the various groups and the memberships out there as well. So it's a credit to oh, you, but it. it's a credit to, <laughs> I think that, that patience and, um, relating back to the hard work, but I think patience, but enjoying what you're doing is just such an undervalued message, but an undervalued skill in today's market, um, particularly with everything going on. I hadn't thought of it that way. So thank you. Well, congratulations on all your success and I'm sure ongoing success, but also just keeping an even keel. You don't need to grow and scale and take over the world and uh, grow your own massive empire. Um, You just need to be happy in what you're doing and where you are. I'm happy right in my now. little business cul-de-sac. I don't need a business empire. I'm happy yep. in my little area. I love it. Where <laughs> can people um, go and find you and experience the various programs, products, and courses that you have? katetoon.com is the start of the universe. Don't look at my website. It's te- Well, do look at it, but give me some piece. It needs a bit of an overhaul. Because again, everything I do is still a work in progress. But yeah, that's where you can find out all my various bits and bobs. And I'm Kate Toon everywhere on the internet. Yep. If you Google you, funnily enough. I might pop up. You might pop hope. up. Yeah, um, maybe. You've worked at that over the, <laughs> over the journey um, to own that name. So I love that. Um, hey, thanks so much for your time today. It's been awesome chatting to you. Lovely to find out a little bit more about your story um, and I guess go behind the scenes on where you've got to, how you've got today. So I really Thank enjoyed you. it. Thanks, Dad. 
Kate Toon, hey, she's a cracker. I'm a big fan of what she does. You can head to katetoon.com and find out more about her. I'll put all the links in the show notes. That can be found at marketingpodcast.chat forward slash session 21. That's marketingpodcast.chat forward slash session 21.